Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. My guest today joins me via Zoom from her home in Montreal. To call Don Tyler Watson a blues singer isn't quite accurate. Sure, in Montreal they call her the Queen of the Blues and her latest record, Mad Love, just won the 2020 Juno Award for Best Blues Album of the Year, but her music also infuses elements of jazz, soul, rock and gospel to push the boundaries of traditional blues. We caught up talking about what she learned while busking in the subway, taking home the coveted first place prize at the International Blues Challenge in Memphis in 2017, why she used to have imposter syndrome but doesn't anymore, and how her perspective on everything changed after triple bypass surgery. I started this interview by asking how she and her dog Molly are doing these days. Let's get to know Dawn Tyler Watson. We're doing pretty good, actually. Molly is fine. Um, yeah, we. Uh, it's it's it is what it is. I try to focus on what I have rather than what I don't have, you know. And so many people are in such worse conditions. So it's 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 quite something. Speaking of I Molly, think Molly just heard her name. Yeah, she's having a little bit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so fine. there isn't any live music right now so i'm asking uh people musicians that i speak to if you have any memories from gigs that either you've done or shows that you've seen that really live on in your memory i feel so grateful that i get to travel the world and get paid and do what i love for a living so you know I, i'm really i'm it's it's awesome some of the coolest places i've played i mean playing the north pole that's really you know yeah. quite something we got to play up there for the troops uh i've played there twice so that's alert which is the highest most inhabited place on earth yeah now, so are that's there, something are there challenges that come along with that i mean I, I presumably it's really cold. That must do something to your throat. Uh, you have to be careful about that kind of thing. What comes along with playing in alert? You're basically, you know, with the armed forces. So you have to follow the protocol. It's the only way to get up there. We wore the Arctic gear. Uh, we went up in uh, in a, in a in a very uncomfortable Hercules plane, and it's far. It's a long flight. It's like, jeez, uh, it's it's like going to London. It's like eight hours. It's far. Yeah, from what I remember, I'd say eight hours, and maybe even longer. We stopped in Greenland, so you know. But you're you're with the army, so I, no, it didn't affect my. It's like you go inside the the complex and you close a fridge door behind you. So we just had a great time. The hardest thing I had to do, well, the last time we went up, we got stuck there. So there was a, yeah, that was when uh, there was something came out in Bosnia. They, they had to, all the all the planes had to go down there. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I remember being stuck. We got stuck there for 10 days. We were supposed to be there for three. Oh, so man. So everybody had all the gigs. I was there with Steve, um, Steve Strongman, Paul Delorier, um, uh, Jack the Kaiser, and so these are all great friends of mine in the blues, and we just jammed and partied. And they drank a lot. I don't drink, but you know, they, they, they basically there's a there's a a gym, there's a bowling alley, there's two bars. It's it's quite crazy. So yeah, a lot of fun. Now we know you as a blues singer, 
but jazz was your original love and that's what actually brought you to montreal i'm i'm in toronto right now speaking to you but you're you, you were born in england you grew up here in toronto and then that you followed your love of jazz to concordia in montreal um tell me what it was about jazz music that that drew you in what was it and what did you first hear that made you think oh i want to do that um, you know, I really always loved, uh, the first time I really started exploring jazz was in my early 20s. So when I got an opportunity to come to Montreal, it wasn't the jazz brought me here. First of all, I'm from London, Ontario, so not Toronto, although <laughs> I did spend some time in Toronto. Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, so when I got a chance to come here, my best friend, one of my best friends moved here, and she encouraged me to come and audition. And um, when I came here, there was no, no program for soul or R&B or pop. It was classical or uh, jazz. So, uh, and I had already been listening to a little bit of jazz. I mean, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, The Greats, Ella Fitzgerald. Somebody had given me a cassette tape, and that shows you how old I am, of, you know, a mixtape. And I just fell in love with the, with the torch songs and with the, you know, the delivery method of, of of, of, of telling a story with song. And so, yeah, when I got accepted in Concordia, first of all, I was quite surprised because my grades were not very good in high school. And, uh, but they accepted me and I, I had the opportunity to do opera because I have a very strong voice. And I, I said, no, I'll, I'll stick with jazz. And so that's, you know, that was the beginning of my love affair with Quebec. I've been here ever since. I moved here in 88. So that was my first year and uh, I was only, 10, 12? That's right, yes. <laughs> Me too. Um, <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Don Tyler Watson, winner of the 2020 Juno Award for Best Blues Album of the Year. How did your transition then into the blues happen? Well, the blues always came, uh, the blues, I say it chose me. It really did. And um, it was my first year of there she is. There's Speaking Molly. Molly. Come. <laughs> Molly, come. Darn it. <laughs> it's just a dog going by. One she doesn't know. But um, yeah, so I, when I first, when I came here, I was studying jazz, as I said. And, and when I graduated, a couple of years later, I was, I, was tour, I was playing in Montreal in the clubs with an R&B soul band. And um, uh, a, a small record label from the West Island approached me to put a couple of songs on a compilation that they were doing, a blues compilation. And that was it. I, I was going to do some standards, but then I said, you know, I can write a blues song. And I wrote a couple tunes and they loved them and they put them on the record. And the very next year I was at the Montreal Jazz Fest in front of 10,000 screaming fans. And uh, I remember the moment distinctly because it was the biggest show I'd ever done. Till then I'd only done clubs and I was in the, they had a catwalk that year and I was standing on the catwalk in the middle of the crowd and I went oh my god I guess I'm a blues singer now and that was it I get goosebumps because I remember the moment exactly I was like and I, I have I have suff suffered or I should say I've struggled with with uh what do they call it uh identity um um yeah you know um, um imposter syndrome imposter syndrome yeah and why so or, Pardon me? And why, why so? Well, since then, 
I struggled with it because uh, I really didn't feel like I'd chosen the blues. I didn't know much about blues. I mean, other than what I'd studied at school, I and and I I fought I, I fought the system. Like I had people around me saying, "You have to do a really traditional blues now." We did this in '98, and my album, my solo album, my first album, didn't come out until 2001. So during that time, we were able to tour a lot, do all the festivals in Quebec and Ontario. We even went to maybe I don't know if I went to France at that point, but we were playing quite a bit, and it was all based on three songs I did on this compilation. So when I put out my album, it was like, "Oh no, it's got to be straight ahead blues. You got to solidify your your your." presence in the in the in the scene and um i because i love jazz and folk and i write and i, I was raised on like country and yeah, all kinds of influences my first album is very eclectic and when it was nominated and i was nominated for maple blues award the first time it was it was like wow people are embracing that and my music has been that way ever since so it's really cool to me now you know so acknowledged by a Juno in the blues music category. Um, and the, the imposter thing only really stopped when we won in 2017, when we won the International Blues Challenge in Memphis. I mean, I went down there with seven guys from Quebec, you know, white guys from Quebec, and we played, we competed against 260 acts, and we beat out all these bands from Chicago and New Orleans and you know it's it really really blew my mind and I went okay wow well I really must be pretty good <laughs> yeah I, I know what I'm doing now well it, it's interesting to to look back uh to just before all that because you bust on the streets and in the subway and I wonder what you learned uh from that you've got to do a takeaway from that because you, you're getting such, probably, I would think, immediate feedback from the people on the street. They either give you money or they don't. I have a feeling they're more likely to speak to you if they like what you're doing. So you must learn a little bit about dealing with an audience from that. Totally. I, I recommend people doing it. First of all, to me, it was it was really a challenge and a game to get people's attention. Because you'll find people who just do this. I don't have any money. I don't want to give you any money, you know, like that. So I would direct my energies to them and I'd sing at the top of my lungs, you know, like whatever song it was at the time, you know, I am your lady and you are my man. And I would belt it and I would try to get these little old guys to look up or the, you know, the people that you know would just normally walk right by you and I would get crowds around me. I learned to project. I learned to communicate to people. I learned not to be afraid of the audience. Um, I learned a lot of things busking and I, I love doing it. And in fact, when this pandemic hit, I thought, I can always go back to busking, you know? I can always go back to singing on the street. Yeah, I was at the, when I stopped busking, I mean, I, I was making like a hundred bucks an hour in front of the jazz festival one year. Yeah, I was right in front of the jazz fest and I was like, people were throwing in $20 US bills and stuff. It was great. So, yeah. That's pretty good money. Yeah, <laughs> it was. You could go for longer than three, four hours, but still it's very good money. Well, you played in the, I think the, the band that you mentioned earlier, one of them anyway, uh, it was the band that you played like R&B and you played The Doors and Aretha Franklin. And there's a story about how you got 50 bucks for playing with them. And 
Tell me about that 50 bucks. Was that the first time you had made money from being on a stage? And what yeah. does that mean to you? Because it's it's an extraordinary thing, right? You you've you do what you love and there's a reward. Yeah. It 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 blew me away. I was like, and at the time I was drinking too. So we were like, we're playing this club. And it was my first band. I was still in the in the in Concordia. It was my first band we put together. We were doing all that material you were talking about. So we were called two thirds scotch because we were two thirds of us were alcoholics. And we just drank, we would drink up our entire tab. And at the anyway, at the end of the night, they gave me my pay. And I was like, wow, and I make money too, you know? It was, it's a wonderful feeling. Like I said, I, the, the pandemic has been so difficult, but I, I, it's also just made me count my blessings that I, I really truly say this from the bottom of my heart. I'm blessed to do what I love for a living, that I get paid for it, that I'm able to, you know, pay my mortgage. I have a house, I have a car, I'm able to take care of myself and see the world and do the thing I love the most and bring people joy. And because it brings people joy, it feeds me, it nourishes me. I do music with seniors. So I've been doing that since I was in Concordia. So over 25 years, I've been doing uh, music with old folks. And so this pandemic has been really tragic to watch, especially here in Quebec. I don't know what the deal is in Toronto. I know you've had some deaths as well, but in, in the residences here, it's been tragic to watch and not be able to you know, to do something. And slowly, I did my first gig last week. They called me to go back to one of the homes and they're slowly opening up again. And the people's faces was, it's just, it's why I do what I do. I I mean, I go in and I, I, I play my guitar and I sing songs they know and I animate them and just the joy on their faces, it's feeds, it feeds my soul, you know? So. In a in a much different sense, you know, we haven't had live music for I don't know. Well, March March thirteenth is when I went into isolation, so uh, I haven't seen uh, any live music at least in since since then. And the other day, I was walking down the street, and uh, there was a guy playing guitar and singing. And frankly, he wasn't very good, but I got kind of emotional because I hadn't seen anyone with an instrument in real life singing and playing music for months, and it really struck a chord with me. Yeah, it's it's powerful. It's a powerful thing. It is. I have my first gig coming up on Sunday. Wow. Uh, so I'm playing at the Upstairs Jazz Bar. So it's, it's, I'm really excited about it. Um, they have put in all the protocols. They've got like plexiglass. It's a really tiny little what, you know. Will you be standing behind plexiglass? I've been hearing that that's one of the solutions that they have is that you play low so people don't have to speak loudly if they're going to speak while the music is on and, you know, uh, and that perhaps the, the performers will be behind some sort of protective layer. Like in the Blues Brothers movie. That's right. <laughs> For different reasons. <laughs> um, I don't believe for this gig we are. Um, I know the owner. I know the club. It's very small. The maximum people they fit in there is 70, 80 people. I've been playing there for years. But their maximum capacity now is 30, and they're doing two shows. And so it, there's a seven-foot signway and, uh, between me and my pianist, so it's only a duo show. And uh, the people are back from the stage, and I will be in the far corner. So that's apparently 20 feet if you sing loud, 
is, you know, the maximum. But I don't believe he's put plexiglass in front of the stage, so to speak. So it's going to be a real, it's going to be a real uh, experience and adventure in, in going back. And he, he was just thinking about it this morning, even the sound, the monitor system, will I be able to hear myself? It's a small place. So this is the first time I've heard what you've said, though, about uh, playing quietly so people can talk and not yell and, you know. You're listening to my interview with Dawn Tyler Watson. Her new record, Mad Love, is available now wherever you buy fine music. Well, it, I, all I know is that it's going to be uh, a learning curve moving forward, I think, uh, in terms of live music and the performance of it. I think in hearing you talk, about uh, how grateful you are that you are making money and that you're, or that you know you have a career singing and that you know, things are going well. I think that again we go back to 2017 and your surgery. That everyone said you will not be able to go to Tennessee. You will not be able to compete. You will not be able to do any of these things. Uh, but you did it and you recovered and you won. Uh, and that's got to be a big thing. But it also has to, I think, change your perspective because you had a life-threatening surgery done that you came through the other side of. Has it changed your perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and um, get a little emotional thinking about it. It's funny because, uh, yeah, it didn't cross my mind, actually, that I wouldn't be able to make it. It was, it was in November uh, 4th. 2016 mm -hmm. and the the doctor had told me I went in it was very sudden and unexpected it was triple bypass and um you know I thought they were going to say lay off the coffee I went into emergency on the Tuesday on the Friday I had the operation so it all happened very quickly and I was like really like just in a, a blur um and when I came out of that um, I remember the doctor said I said what's the uh, downtime he said three to six months all I heard was three months because mm -hmm. I knew that in 11 weeks, I was I had my flights booked to go to Memphis. And we were gonna go and we were gonna do our damn best to represent and to, to win this competition. Nice. And uh, it never crossed my mind. I remember my dear friend, Angel Forrest, coming to me and saying, Dawn, do you think you can, you know, we're okay to step in? She was the runner up at the, at the Quebec competition. And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? No, I'm going, man, I'm going. And, it didn't cross my mind. I went, we went, we did our best and we freaking won. It's one of the proudest moments. And for me, I'm a real perfectionist. And, you know, even winning the Juno, it's like super great, but it's always like, well, I could have done this better or that better. Or I should. Now I got to do a new album. And now it's, you know, there's, there's always something. It's hard for me to really feel that pride. But that moment in, in, in February in 2017, and it was to the day, the 4th of February of January, sorry, that we won that competition. No, February. Yeah. And I, I, to the day, and I remember standing on that stage and just feeling, like I said, that imposter syndrome vanished. We had just won in Memphis <laughs> against all these killer blues bands, like killer. And, and I, it so still fills me with pride and affirms that I am in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time, no matter what's going on around me. So yeah, yeah, it, it did change me. It changed my perspective, gave me a lot more confidence um, and, and filled me with a lot of 
a lot of pride, pride and gratitude. You're listening to my interview with Don Tyler Watson. Find her record, Mad Love, wherever you buy fine music. Well, let's talk about, you talk about new music. You mentioned that, Mad Love. Congratulations on this. Thank you. And tell me, uh, sort of the, the, the themes of the uh, songs are about love in all sorts of different ways. It's not just one, they're not all love songs. There are some hurting songs. There are some love songs. There, it, it's love in in all its many splendored beauty. Uh, tell me about the the uh, um, inspiration from putting this together. Did it start as sort of like a theme uh, uh, song or a collection of songs? It, it kind of materialized into that. It kind of as we started putting the songs together, it became that. And I was just going through uh, a major. Uh, divorce. I had just gone through a divorce, actually. So in 20, 2015, uh, the breakup of my marriage, which was sudden and unexpected. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, issues, uh, mental health issues, uh, depression and anxiety that came after. And, and so that spurred some of the songwriting. And then we, um, when we went into the studio and started to collect the songs together, we started to see this, the theme. And some of them were just so powerful. And doing the, the album was a real cathartic exercise for me. Uh, I mean, and every time I sing these songs, I heal. So you're talking about the ones, there are some fun ones on there. There's some light ones about flirting. There's some, some sexy ones. There's, you know, there's ones about you know, addictive love, there's ones about mental illness, there, you know, and, 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 and love and loving someone who has an illness. And, um, you know, and about the relief of being in a relationship that you don't even know is weighing you down and carrying uh, so much emotional weight that when it's over, you, you, you suddenly realize, oh my God, I can breathe. And you know, that song feels good is about that. When I sing that on stage, it's coming from my soul every single time and I heal. And I know that despite all the pain of breaking up and trying to keep it together, but you know, that I'm, 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 I'm far more better off now, you know? And so, yeah. And when, and then when we did the photo shoot, we saw the, we saw the, that photo, the, the, the headshot, which is like, you know, ah, you know? Uh. It's it, mad love can be mad angry, which love can drive us to be insanely angry. And it can also drive you crazy. So it just seemed like a really appropriate title and everything, like I said, just fell into place. And, and I find that in life in general, when things just fall into place and you're in the flow, that's where it's supposed to go. And, well, it's a very confident sounding record. And by that, I mean your work on it and the songwriting. And I think it's really interesting that the lyrics to The River and Love to Burn were written just as you were going in the studio. And I think that's a sign of confidence. You know, instead of, of writing a song, practicing it 5,000 times in a club before you record it, this is a different way of working. This is what Bob Dylan does, walks in and just makes stuff happen in the front. And it sounds, to me, it sounds different and it feels different. Does it to you? Well, it's interesting you point that out because yeah, I didn't know Bob Dylan did that. I thought just unorganized ADD people like me did that. It's like, <laughs> I am showing up, I'm supposed to record this today, but it's not finished. You know, here we go, I'm gonna sit down and write because I sometimes don't do anything until I'm right at the edge and then it's 
okay, it's crush time, Don. You got to record the, the, you know. So we had to, I had to finish the lyrics on that. The river, it was just the order of the verses. Yeah, we wrote one or two of the verses the same day I recorded them. So it's interesting because, yeah, I often chide myself because I don't do the song 5,000 times live to really get it gelled before I go in the studio. I tend to go in the studio with whatever. And then, and God bless Francois Tipo, who is my producer, Frankie, because he's the one who says, okay, here's the timeline. You need to do this, 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 and that. And then we're going to go in the studio on this month and this day. And this is, he took me by the hand, literally, for both records that I worked with him and, <clears throat> and led me through the process and told me, okay, we're doing it Monday. You know, he, he's just got a way of being able to focus my energy. And I really believe if, if it wasn't for him that, you know, this album wouldn't have sounded anywhere near as confident. Also the Ben Racine band, I am so blessed to work with Ben and the guys. They are a tight unit. They are committed. They're professional. They're, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, what can I say? A gang of guys, they're young, they're enthusiastic. So they just make me sound good. So it's beautiful. I'm really, really glad and, and happy to know that you, you noticed that on the record, that it sounds confident, because that, that's really cool. That was Dawn Tyler Watson. Be sure to find her award-winning album, Mad Love, wherever you buy fine music. We're going to meet one of the people who has changed our views on science forever. That's astronaut Chris Hadfield. He's the first Canadian to walk in space. In addition to being the most famous astronaut in our country, he's an author, engineer, and former Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot. Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner, is a fan, and the late, great David Bowie called Hadfield's acoustic version of Space Oddity, performed on board the International Space Station in 2013, possibly the most poignant version of the song ever recorded. At the Pop Life Bar, he talked about how being in space makes you aware of how connected you are to people on Earth and much more. Here's Chris Hadfield. Let's go way back then right. and talk about how you got interested in all of this. Uh, reading an astronaut's guide to life on Earth, yeah. uh, you talk about science fiction. You sure. loved science fiction stories growing up. Oh, what yeah. was it about science fiction? And do you think that's where the seed of all of this was planted? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you're, whatever, seven years old or even five years old, you don't live in the real world. That's right. You know, it's like Calvin and Hobbes, right? <laughs> you know, Hobbes is just a stuffed tiger, but for Calvin, that's a real living being, yeah. and, and there's no question. And, and so fiction, imagination, art, the, the permission to, to picture things that don't exist for real. I, I grew up on a farm, you know, heavy workload, yeah. schooled and working on the farm, and the escape of the possibilities seemed endless. First in books, you know, reading Asimov and, uh, and Heinlein and, and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and Jules Verne and stuff, just fantastic stuff, Mysterious Island, more science than science fiction. But then Star Trek, you know, <laughs> Star Trek, wow. We, we'd been watching Bonanza and suddenly yeah. here's Bonanza set in space, you know? And, and, and then 2001, I went, to see that Kubrick movie with uh, as as one of my friend's birthday party when we were about whatever eight. Yeah. And as you a group must of, not have understood a second. Uh, I, well, of I it. still don't understand a second of it, but but it, it's it's still I, when I watch that it just helps me imagine things that otherwise I would never go down with my head. 
but all of that was in parallel, that mind expansion was in parallel to the reality of space flight, mm -hmm. of uh, Gagarin and then Al Shepard and, and Alexei Leonov for spacewalk and then Neil and Buzz walking on the moon. And so to have the juxtaposition of fantasy and actual reality, it's like, what if Spider-Man and Superman <laughs> suddenly, wow, they're real, and I could maybe do that. And that's what really uh, turned the light on for me was that this isn't just science fiction. This is a thing that other people are doing, and they're going to be Canadians doing this. And if you change who you are, then maybe you could be one of the people doing these things. So it kind of uh, set the path for me when I was eight, nine years old. But the odds of it actually happening for you in those days must have been fairly slim, don't well, you think? Well, I think they were zero because <laughs> there was no Canadian astronaut right. program, no Canadian rockets, no Canadian space agency. There was no end game. You know, there was nobody I could write my letters to, you know, but, but I figured, hey, when, when Neil and Buzz mm -hmm. were my age and Yuri and, and Alexei, they didn't have anybody to write to either. And look what they did. It's the only thing that I could count on was that things were gonna change and that if I didn't change who I was, mm -hmm. then there was no way I was gonna fly in space. So why not, why not shape who you are in pursuit of what you dream, and, and at the same time earning a living, doing, mm -hmm. doing things that sort of drag your life that direction. But incredibly enough, at the end of all that, I flew in space three times and did spacewalks that are on the $5 bill and, uh, and commanded a spaceship. It, it seems surreal, but, but all those things have happened. When you got up there, was it the way you imagined it would be? That's a really cool question because <laughs> I actually had in the, in the back of my mind, I was like, what if I get there and I don't like it? Like, you know, you know it's like drinking wine. <laughs> you know, wine has so much mystique and yeah. everyone talks about it. And I'm sure there are some people that take their first sip of wine and go, <laughs> That's what it tastes like, really? I was, I was expecting something different. Um, and there are some people who fly in space and it, one flight is enough for them. The, the amount of work and the stress mm. and, the, and the, the, the danger of it. But for me, it, it, when I was that little boy dreaming of it and, and you know, with a flashlight reading, uh, reading those science fiction books, it was better than I dreamed it would be. The combination of doing something that, I, that was really hard that I dreamed of, of having the whole world silent and, and whipping by in the window and, and having a superpower being weightless. I mean, if, if you could snap your fingers and make that happen again, I'd go with you in a heartbeat. It's a great experience. And seeing 16 sunrises a day, right? Yeah, yeah, you go, you go around the world in 90 minutes. So uh, if you, you know, 24 hours, 90 minutes, that means 16 times around a day. And, and they happen fast. You know, really? you're in the darkness, but you're coming around the world forcing the sunrise. And so, um, it goes from the complete darkness of light, and then it's like someone just dumps a rainbow on the horizon like a liquid, and bam, up comes the sun, and there's another sunrise. And every 90 minutes, you get one of those. And, and the heat of the sun, because there's nothing stopping those sun rays except yeah. you know, one or two panes of, of thick plastic, and it's on your face. So, so it's, uh, it's an amazing place to be, and you get reminded every 90 minutes well, how amazing it is. Was that, you talk about the sunlight coming through and you feel it on your face, was that the connection to the earthbound life that you had left behind, the, sort of the pleasure? We can walk outside yeah. and feel the sun on our face. You couldn't do that up there, but it, was it a way of, of, I don't know, reminding yourself of what life on Earth was like? No, actually, the sunrises and sunsets, they were more like uh, watching a painting be created in front of you. What really tied you to home was seeing all seven and a half billion people every day. 
because because the world turns underneath you. Yeah. So you see everybody. You look down and go, oh look, there's Karachi. Whatever, nine <laughs> nine million people. Yeah. Holy cow! And and uh, ten minutes later, you know, you're you're coming over whatever Singapore, and 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 you wait forty minutes, and now you're over San Francisco, and the whole world and everybody in it, and all of our what we think are so wildly different cultures, and you know. We, we pretend we're so radically different mm -hmm. from each other. When you see the whole thing in 90 minutes, you realize this is one little shared, if you can go around it in 90 minutes, it can't be very <laughs> big, right? Like, you know, if you can drive across something in 90 minutes, you can run for 90 minutes, yeah. you know? Um, and so the world is not very large. And I think that's what really tied me back, was having that, that constant reminder uh, of the life there and, and how joined it is. I'm in conversation with Commander Chris Hatfield. During your command on the ISS, uh, education was very important to you. You were very active on social media. We knew what was happening, but it was all about education. Was that one of your mandates, or was it a personal mandate? Both. Um, uh, well, of course, for the space agency, uh, they are one of the main scientific bodies within mm -hmm. Canada, along with you know Scientific and Engineering Research Council and uh, some of the various other things the government does. We we need people to be aware of how things work. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you look at a city like Toronto, the complexity of the science and engineering that allows all of us to live here in such sort of carefree comfort um, doesn't happen automatically. Right. It happens because of people understanding all of the complexity and and but you have to inspire people and and I'm lucky enough to have done a job that just by sort of its very nature the rarity of it and the distance of it 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 catches people's attention if I sit next to someone on a bus and we're like hey look out the window and, and so what do you do I'm an astronaut all normal yep. conversation <laughs> no, stops, absolutely. Right? you know if I'd said I'm an engineer a tax accountant or whatever like that yeah. uh, and so um, so therefore, there's a responsibility comes with the job. And I would already been an astronaut for 20 years when I went up for my third space flight, the long one on the space station. So I sort of knew what everybody on the bus wanted to talk about. Right. And, and I worked really hard in, when I was supposed to be asleep. I would steal one or two hours every night when, when my schedule said sleep. <laughs> I would go, I'll sleep later. Let's try and get one more video cranked right. out of what what this means, and not and use the beauty and the allure and the science fiction aspects of it to get people to maybe understand a little more clearly the universe around us. Were you aware of the impact that you were having? Uh, well, no, sort of remotely, you know. Um, there's no, you know, I'm a musician as well, and when, mm -hmm. when you play in front of an audience, while you're playing, you you could be there's there's no sound for right. the audience yeah yeah but at the end there's applause in space you do all this there's no applause yeah. <laughs> but but you're still aware that there's an audience yeah and uh, but mostly I was just trying to use all the time to to create content because I knew I'd have the rest of my life to sort of decide I took thousands and thousands of pictures forty five thousand then eventually published a book of like what it would be like mm. to go around the world with me or collecting the ideas or writing music trying to trying to soak up the idea and then record it as many ways as I could so that I had multimedia ways of playing it back for myself and other people the rest of my life. Do you still think like an astronaut? I believe I do. I'm, I'm very clinical about uh, risk prioritization, preparing for events. 
Uh, I, I mean, I recently closed, winterized my cottage. Yeah. And I don't know how other people winterize a cottage, but I kind of winterize a cottage like an astronaut. I think, you know, there's, there's a list of dangers and risks, and then there's ways to mitigate those risks, and then there's actions that have to follow, and then there's ways to double check afterwards yeah. that you've done those actions, and then you report it, and then you keep a checklist for next year so that, so that you don't miss the steps next year. And, and I sort of approach everything like that, flying, with the snowbirds or uh, flying my own airplanes, you know, where people let me fly an airplane, I, or whatever. I, I sort of treat everything as an interesting task with a certain amount of risk and danger with some sort of end game. And the real question is, can I change myself to be able to do this thing so it now just increases the number of things that I'm, I'm uh, skilled at in my life? Well, that's it for today. I want to thank all my guests. Dawn Tyler Watson, you can find her record, Mad Love, wherever you buy fine music. Keep in mind, the Juno people named it the best blues album of 2020. Also to Commander Chris Hadfield, what a pleasure to speak to him. He is a true Canadian hero. Check out his website, chrishadfield.ca. I really liked the t-shirts he has for sale there. As the world's biggest Bowie fan, I really like the one that's his face with the Aladdin Sane lightning bolt on it. Most of all, though, my thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.